This morning, as we continue through our sermon series in the book of Romans, we find ourselves still in Romans chapter 12 in verses 3 through 8. And again, beginning in Romans 12, Paul has shifted, as we've seen, from the doctrinal part of his letter into the application of that doctrine in our lives as believers and in the church. And so this morning, when you come to Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, and this is God's word, let us give careful attention to it. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that defer according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do ask now that you would attend to your word as it is proclaimed through your spirit that it would take root in our hearts, that for those who know you, you would strengthen faith and build them up, encourage them as your people. And for those who know you not, that you would produce faith, that you would break down the walls of unbelief and call them the power of your Spirit to Christ so they might trust him and believe and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, from the moment we are born into this world, we begin to realize and to learn and to understand that we have many needs which we cannot answer or meet on our own. I mean, new babies have so many of them, right? They cannot feed themselves. They cannot change themselves. They cannot dress themselves. And many a parent will tell you that they can't even seem to put themselves to sleep. They need mom and dad to hold them and to help them. Now, as we grow, we do learn to meet some of those needs on our own. But the reality is we never outgrow our dependence, our need for others in our lives. We have needs that might change over time. But we always face challenges and issues and problems and struggles that we cannot overcome on our own, that we cannot solve or answer as individuals, and we were not designed to do so. You see, God created us to belong together, to be part of a community. When God first made Adam, he said it was not good for Adam to be alone. And so he created Eve to be his wife as a helper fit for him. Furthermore, God created humanity to originally be his people. 
a covenant community who would enjoy him and glorify him forever. And we saw last week, as Paul launches in uh, Romans chapter 12 into this practical section of his letter, that the summary of God's law is all about worshiping God. It's loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 show us that the gospel enables us as God's people to do just that, to present our whole selves as sacrifices, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable worship. In other words, the gospel restores the community that we are meant to have an enjoyment with God that was marred by our own sin. But it wasn't just our relationship with God that was injured by sin and rebellion against Him. Our relationship with other people suffers greatly as a result of our transgressions and our unrighteousness. That's because our sinful hearts are all about serving ourselves, not serving others. About loving ourselves, not loving others. And the answer to that, just as it was with our broken relationship with God, is the gospel. God's redeeming work of saving us and making us his people shapes us into people who will show forth the love that we are called to show as we are transformed into the image of Christ, who is the great servant of God, we will serve one another. Particularly, Paul shows us here this morning, in the church. That's who he's speaking to. Our relationship as believers, as God's people, as a community, brought together in covenant in Christ, how we relate to each other in the church. And we learn here that God gives different gifts to us to build his kingdom community by building up each other through loving service. And there are three ways that we can serve one another in the church. The first is this, is that we develop humility by seeing ourselves in the light of the gospel. We develop humility by seeing ourselves in the light of the gospel. So again, verse 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So just as Paul has based his appeal in verses 1 and 2 to give ourselves wholly to God because of God's mercy. So he now grounds his exhortation to serve each other in the church in God's grace. For it is God's grace in the gospel that humbles us, that gives us the humility that we need in heart to serve one another. Think about it. The gospel, what does it do? It calls us to repentance, right? It causes us to acknowledge that we have sinned against God and others. Repentance by nature involves humility. True repentance is never arrogance. It doesn't boast in itself, but it sees that it has wronged God, that it has broken his law, and it has hurt others and damaged relationships. That's what sin does. So repentance involves humility, but so does our faith, because faith 
rests or in and it trusts in Christ alone as the only hope of salvation. It doesn't trust in ourselves in arrogance or pride, but it trusts in Christ. So repentance and faith, the gospel itself, develops humility in our lives. And it is then based upon the grace of God in the gospel that Paul himself had received that he says to the believers in the church, don't esteem yourselves more highly than you ought to. And the wording he uses here is is meant to call to mind something that controls a person. He's talking about the mind. So he says, don't think within your mind that you are better or greater than others. And there's an interesting wordplay that he uses to communicate the idea that pride controls a person like other controlling uh, influences in their lives, alcohol or drugs. So pride will blind you to the needs and hurts and pains of others. Pride will cripple you from being able to show compassion to those in the church, to to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And pride and arrogance and conceit makes you care more about yourself above all others. In other words, pride damages and destroys relationships. It prevents us from fulfilling what we were made to be, worshipers of God who love his creation. And so Paul says that through the gospel, as you come to Christ, don't think of yourself as being greater than others. You see, the gospel calls us to show forth to the world what real community looks like. It calls to humility, not boastful self-confidence. It calls to sacrifice, not self-service. And so we are, as God's people, through the grace of God, to serve one another by developing humility. And so we do that by fighting our pride through the grace of God, through, as Paul says here, sober judgment. He wants us as believers to think soberly and sensibly in how we view ourselves in relation to others. Notice that Paul in this verse, in verse 3, he, he qualifies sober judgment by saying that it is in, in a, according to the measure of faith that God assigns each person. And that little phrase is important. You see, sober judgment speaks to right, wise, or self-controlled thinking. It is thinking that is controlled by our faith in Christ that God has given us. It sees ourselves as God sees us, and thus will see others, especially within the church, as God sees them. You see, we aren't to think of ourselves too highly, but we're also not to think of ourselves too lowly as well. That's what the gospel teaches us. What does it teach us? It teaches us that, yes, we are low, that we are sinners, that we are worms who have eaten the dirt of our own selfish desires. We have sinned against God. The gospel lowers us. It humbles us. It shows us that we are actually lower than we really like to believe we are. But what else does the gospel do? It lifts us up. It lifts us up from the miry pit of our own sin. It restores us to enjoy God's presence. It washes us clean of our sin and makes us right with God our Father. 
You know, a great biblical illustration of this is Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. I know it's a favorite of many of us. So the younger son leaves the father. You know this well. And what does he do? He, he sins against the father. He, he despised his inheritance. He, he took it and he squandered it on sinful living. He was arrogant. He thought he deserved that inheritance. But what happened? Well, he was humbled, right? He was brought down. He lost everything. And we see him lying in filth in a pig pen. But he repents. At the lowest point of his life, he repents and he returns in humility to the Father. And what happens? He's restored. He's given new clothes. He's seated at a bountiful table to enjoy the Father's love again. He is lifted up by the love and mercy of the Father. See, that's what the humility that we learn in the gospel teaches us. It brings us down, but it lifts us up so that we are who God made us to be. It sees our sin, but it also sees that we are united to Christ. It sees that we are more sinful than we can imagine, but we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we could even understand. That's the humility of the gospel. And when we see that, and we see it in others, our brothers and sisters in the church will see them as God sees them. And we will serve in humility, not in pride. You see, our service to one another in the church is a manifestation of our faith that God has given us, faith that informs our thinking so that we do not think too highly of ourselves. John Murray, who is a great Scottish theologian, he used to teach at Westminster Theological Seminary in the early 20th century, he put it like this. He says it's so wonderful. He says, if we consider ourselves to possess gifts we do not have, then we have an inflated notion of our place and function. We sin by esteeming ourselves beyond what we are, but if we underestimate then we are refusing to acknowledge God's grace and we fail to exercise that which God has dispensed for our own sanctification and that of others. We serve one another in the church by developing true humility, humility that helps us to see ourselves for who we are and who our brothers and sisters in Christ are. Secondly, we serve one another by delighting in God's design for the church as the body of Christ. So we develop humility and we delight in God's design for the church. And we see this in verses 4 through 5. Paul says again, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So when we see ourselves as the gospel directs us to see ourselves with that sober judgment in accordance to the faith that God gives, we will see ourselves as belonging to a body, Christ's body, which is his church. Paul says what he says here in verses 4 through 5 to provide a foundation for what he's about to say regarding the gifts God gives us in verses 6 through 8. 
And so this metaphor of the body, it's really not that hard to understand. It's not complicated, is it? I mean, there are many parts that make up our whole body. A body has hands and feet and legs and arms that make up the whole body and a head. And a hand by itself, of course, is not a body, nor does a foot do what an eye does. So not all members of the body have the same function, but they all need each other to function as they were designed. In fact, when they don't, that is a disability, that is a problem or a medical condition. Now, have you ever played Tetris or do you know what Tetris is? I think most of us know. It's a computer game, right? Where colored blocks fall from the top of the screen and they descend downward and you have to arrange them so that they form a straight line across the bottom of the screen, united together, and it disappears and you get points for that. And the shapes, which are all different sizes, if you don't put them together, it won't form a line. It'll make a gap in that line. And if you do that too often, it fills up the screen and you lose the game. Each piece needs to come together just as it was designed, like a jigsaw puzzle, in order to win the game. Furthermore, each piece cannot function on its own. They need to work together. And so it is with the church. Each member has different functions. We all are given gifts and abilities and talents, and they differ from one another. And we are all given something. And the body, the whole church, benefits from all of them when they are joined together as one body in Christ. Furthermore, Paul says we are individually members of one another. So we belong to Christ and thus we also belong to one another. You cannot be who you are in Jesus without belonging to Jesus' church. You see, Paul doesn't leave in these words here any room for lone wolf Christianity. He is very straightforward. He says, we are one body, but many members. We're not one member all on our own. While we are individual parts with different functions, we belong together. Now, this runs contrary, of course, to the way that many people like to think about Christianity, especially today. You've probably heard this. Many people will say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. I'm fine with Christ, but not the church. So I'll take the gospel, but I will not be part of the church. You see, I'll be very frank. There is no possible world presented in Scripture anywhere where that scenario exists. When God saves you by his grace, he unites you to Jesus, who is the head of his body, which is his church. And part of your salvation, then, is belonging in this community, this covenant community of God, whether you have an outward, visible, formal membership or not. And what that means, then, as, as, as a Christian, you ought to seek to join with a visible expression of Christ's body. If you are a Christian and you have not joined with a visible church, you're starving yourself of God's ordinary means of grace that is dispensed to you through the body. 
I mean, if you cut off a finger and cast it aside from a physical body, it's not going to survive on its long. It's going to decay, right? It's going to turn rather unsightly. It needs to be connected and united, and there it enjoys life with the whole body together. That's what Paul is getting at here. You see, the Bible never presents an individualistic salvation. It does speak of individual salvation, of our, that we personally must come to Christ in faith and repentance. But salvation in the Bible places a person within God's community that God saves. There's always a corporate element to it, a communal aspect Belonging to Jesus and being part of his church are so closely related in the Bible that Cyprian, one of the early church fathers, once said that a person cannot have God as father who does not have the church for mother. He wasn't being Roman Catholic in saying that. All he's saying is your faith, where you grow in faith, where you find the blessing of the gospel and hear it and is renewed in the truth of God is in the life and worship of God's people in the church. The very authors of our confession of faith understood this as well when they said that outside the church there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now that doesn't mean that church membership results in salvation because it does not. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And nor does this mean that a person who never joins a church cannot be saved because God saves according to his sovereign mercy and grace. But it does mean that in ordinary circumstances, the means by which God pours out the grace and mercy of the gospel into your life is through the life and worship of the church. It does mean that if your faith is resting in Jesus, your Savior and King, you will delight in that design that God has made and you will seek to be joined with his people. The church is Christ's body, as Paul says here in Romans. And to the Colossian church, he explains that Christ is the head of that body. To claim you can have Jesus, the head, without having the body doesn't work. I mean, you cannot carry a head around without a body. It's not possible. They are so connected. And what a blessing it is then to belong to Christ and be part of his people, to be part of that body, because we help each other as we delight in the, the, the design that God has made. We help each other. We serve one another. We strengthen each other's faith. We encourage one another to walk in Christ. We help each other when those hard providences and those difficulties of life arise. We meet needs both spiritual and physical. In other words, we find out what it truly means to love your neighbor as yourself. This design is hardwired into the very DNA of God's people. And so serve one another then by delighting in God's design for the church as the body of Christ in which he has made you by making you his own. We serve one another by developing humility. We serve one another as we delight in God's design for the body of Christ. And finally, we serve one another when we demonstrate love 
through God's gracious gifts. And we see those gifts laid out for us in verses 6 through 8. And there's a couple of things we need to notice right off the bat here. First of all, as we've already acknowledged, Christians are given gifts by, uh, God's, uh, by God's grace. All Christians. Nobody's left out. Everybody is given some ability or strength or talent by God's grace to serve his body, to serve one another. He doesn't exclude, Paul doesn't exclude anybody in the church. So old and young, men, women, and children, we all have something God has given us to serve one another. That includes even the youngest amongst us. In fact, kids, listen to me, that you are that are in here. Let me get your attention. I'm going off script here. We believe that you are part of God's people. That's why we raise you in the faith with hopes that you will trust Christ and make the faith that you see in those of us who are adults, your parents and others, your own. But you still are part of this body and you still can serve it. You can serve it when you play together joyfully, carefully, respectfully. You can serve it when you sit in worship and do your best to listen. I know it's hard. I know Pastor Jeremy's boring. But when you listen and you give your parents and others a chance to listen, God is at work and you are showing love and serving the rest of the people around you. And God is honored by that and pleased by your service. The truth is all of us serve the Lord. We're all given some way that we can serve each other because God has given us all grace by making us part of his church. So we all have something. The second thing we need to see right off the bat is that we don't all have the same gift, do we? We know that. Paul says the gifts defer, just like members of the body defer. Not everyone can teach. Not everyone is gifted to lead. Not all can serve in the same way, and that is a good and necessary thing. It brings order to God's church. Now, we know this and understand it when it comes to the metaphor, again, of the body. An eye cannot hear and an ear cannot see. That would be very weird. So God gives every believer gifts that defer, which means that there is no passivity in the church. Everyone has a role to fulfill, a place to serve, a function to which God has called them. And so Paul says here then, having gifts, because you do have them, let us use them. That's the active word. We are all equipped for this. We are to be active, engaged in the business of Christ and the business of his church. And Paul lists out seven distinct gifts. It is by no means a complete list or comprehensive. There are many, many gifts and abilities and talents which God equips his people. And these are not listed in level of rank or importance as if some are more important than others. No, they are all needed. They are all beneficial for the church. Furthermore, each gift has a regulative principle that governs its use so that we do have order and decency as God has designed and wired into his church. 
and we serve each other in accordance with how God instructs us to serve. And that is why certain gifts that are mentioned even in this list are not used necessarily in the same way they would have been used in the early church or in the Old Testament. And such is the case with that first gift he mentions, prophecy. Prophecy is the function of communicating God's revelation, the revelation of his truth to his people and to the world. And in the Old Testament, the prophets gave direct revelation from God. They said, thus says the Lord. It was God's revelation to people who must hear it. And it wasn't always in reference to future events, as we often think with prophets. Sometimes they were simply revealing the realities of God's judgment, but also his mercy. Well, today, prophecy isn't a gift manifested in the same way. Why? Because God has completed his word. He's given us the whole Bible. We read in 2 Peter 2.19 that we now, as believers, have the prophetic word of God more fully or completely confirmed. We don't need any other revelation. God's finished it. We can see fully what Christ has done, who he is, what he is doing, and we're simply waiting for our king to return. But that doesn't mean that prophecy still isn't a gift for the church. Because we do have it in his written word. We read it. We hear it. It strengthens our faith. And any time a minister of the gospel preaches the word of God, he is revealing, not new revelation, but revealing what is recorded already for us in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit, when he attends to the faithful proclamation of God's word in the scriptures, God's truth is revealed in the hearts of the hearers to produce faith if there is none, or to strengthen the faith of his people, to bring conviction of sin, repentance, and faith. And so the regulative principle for prophecy, Paul says in verse 6, is the proportion of faith. In other words, a prophet is not to go beyond what God has given him to proclaim. It must be in accordance with God's truth and never be in conflict with the full body of God's revelation. The second gift Paul mentions is service. And the word Paul uses uh, in the original Greek, it does find its root in that word that is commonly translated as deacon or deacons. And it's for that reason that Paul probably had the diaconate of the church in mind when he wrote this. And deacons, of course, as a office of the church, are called by God and ordained to care for the physical needs of the church. And it's something, actually, that goes back into the Old Testament as well. You know, in the Old Testament, in the temple worship, not all the Levitical priests administered the ceremonial worship of the temple. There were others who were tasked with the care of that temple. In fact, if you go into the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what you find is this word, diakonos, to speak of those priests who cared for the temple. And in doing that, they were also serving uh, the king. For the church is not only Christ's body, but it is his temple. And deacons serve that temple, that is the church. They serve the body of the king, they serve the king. But it is not just deacons that are called to serve. Theirs, of course, is a specific role ordained, given to them by the church. But they are ordained to lead 
in service. And we see all throughout the Old, or the New Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, men and women who serve the needs of the body of Christ. And of course, in our church, we know we have many needs, from hospitality to the upkeep of this beautiful building that God has given us to use for his name's sake. There are many ways in which we can serve. And if God has equipped you uniquely to meet those needs, follow the lead of the deacons God has given you. Serve the king by serving his temple. The next gift Paul mentions, of course, is teaching. God, in his grace, equips some to guide and to instruct others in the truth of the gospel. Now, teaching doesn't necessarily happen in a formal setting. Teaching happens in all sorts of situations. And both men and women have opportunities to teach the wisdom of God to others. In fact, uh, Paul, in Titus 2, instructs the older women, the mothers of our faith, to teach the younger women. And parents are to teach their children the truth of God and his gospel in Christ. But it's not necessarily done in a formal class setting. Teaching can come in those little moments when you come alongside a brother or a sister who may be hurting or struggling in some way and you share with them the promises, the goodness of God and the gospel and you encourage them and sustain them. That's why teaching is related very closely with the next gift Paul mentions which is exhortation. And exhortation is personal and empathetic concern for others in the body of Christ. I'm sure you've probably met people like this, that God has gifted in a special way that they are so sensitive, they see the needs of others that many of us do not see. And they're able to come alongside and bring that encouragement that is so needed. Praying together can be a form of exhortation and teaching. The next gift that Paul mentions is the one who contributes or gives. All believers, of course, are called to give, but some are especially gifted by God to give a greater portion in a significant way. And giving shouldn't simply be thought of in financial terms. One may be gifted by God to give of their time. They have significant time in the day that they can devote in prayer to others that others may not have. And the regulating principle for contribution or giving, Paul says, is generosity. And another way to translate that is sincerity. It is a joyful, heartfelt giving that delights in blessing others. And Paul mentions leadership or rule. He particularly has in mind those who are called by God to exercise oversight and government over his church. And there's little doubt, Paul has in mind, of course, the elders of the church. And he says they are to lead with zeal, that is, with diligent readiness, devotion to the responsibilities given to them. They are to shepherd the flock through prayer and exhortation, keeping watch over God's people with care and compassion and concern. And finally, Paul mentions acts of mercy as a gift that God gives his people. And this likely refers to close, personal ministry. 
Mercy is the care and concern we have within the church for those who are sick and suffering, those who have significant needs that need special attention. Mercy could be hospitality of opening your home to pour out liberally the blessing of fellowship that encourages and strengthens others. And mercy, Paul says, is to be regulated or done with cheerfulness or happiness, not begrudgingly, not because we feel we have to, but because we want to. We who have seen mercy will show great mercy to others. So all these gifts that Paul mentions, and again, it's not a comprehensive list, are a means of God that he has given us to demonstrate the love of God to one another. And we all, as part of Christ's church of his body are equipped by God's grace through the gospel to serve each other in some capacity. If not in the gifts mentioned here, in some other way we ought to be serving. Again, there's no passivity in the body of Christ. We are active in our faith together. And the point of this all is that it is the gospel that unites us together as Christ's body to serve one another. And in doing that, we show to the world what it means to truly love your neighbor as yourself. We show to the world that this is the community, this is the kingdom that God has built and is building. In other words, we glorify God, we build his kingdom when we serve one another. And so let us then serve each other by developing humility through the gospel, delighting in God's design for the church, and demonstrating God's love to each other before a world in great need of seeing that love. And God will build his kingdom through us so that he might receive the glory forevermore. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for its truth. May it burn within our hearts. May it stir us to praise you and to serve one another. Not that we are trying to earn your grace, for we cannot. But because we have already received your grace and long to glorify you, we serve one another in love. Father, help us to discern how we might do this so that you might be glorified amongst us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.